Blog Talk Radio. the March 31st, 2013 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard. It's the podcast discussing news and politics from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy, Objectivism. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff, and today I am joined in studio by Yaron Brook. He's the president of the Ayn Rand Institute. Yaron, as many of you know, has been a frequent guest on the show and always has valuable things to say on whatever news I want to discuss that week. But recently, he and I decided it would be good to do an entire show on foreign policy including a discussion of the proper foreign policy with respect to our ally, Israel. Yaron, as you might know, was a first sergeant in Israeli military intelligence, but in addition, he has written and lectured extensively on foreign policy, although that's not really his primary focus now. He is a contributor to the book Winning the Unwinnable War, which was edited by ARI's Alain Journo. And he is also the co-author, along with C. Bradley Thompson, of Neoconservatism, an Obituary Foreign Idea. Thank you for joining us again, Yaron. Sure. Thanks for having me on. And I was thinking that now that Red Eye has a president, they have John Bolton as their president, because Bolton is a frequent guest, and you're a frequent guest here. I think you should be the president of Don't Let go. It Go Unheard. How about that? So. I, I dub thee, and someday you'll have to give a state of the show speech and the whole bit. It's you know just more obligations for you, right? You have not enough to do. But I have myself for this hour only a few questions and, and follow-ups just to get the ball rolling. Uh, I've got a question via Twitter, one from Facebook, etc. But I'm also going to give listeners the opportunity to ask questions either in the chat room or by calling in. The phone number is seven six zero eight eight eight. Five eight one seven. Again, that's seven six zero eight 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 five eight one seven. If you want to ask a question of Yaron Brook, let's go ahead and get started just with an overview in terms of the proper foreign policy. What is the proper standard for American foreign policy? I've seen you criticize both Obama, Clinton before Obama, but also Bush. You you leveled a lot of criticism against Bush. So you criticize both the left and the right on foreign policy. What yeah, what do you it, think is the right standard? Yeah, absolutely. I, I'd say that America hasn't had a proper foreign policy probably for for you know almost as long or maybe longer than they haven't had an appropriate domestic policy. So you could go back to the to the mid to late 19th century and start seeing the inappropriate foreign policy uh, of American presidents. Look, the standard for for foreign policy is exactly the same as the standard for domestic policy. The role of government is one. The role of government is to protect the individual rights of Americans. And as a consequence, uh, we know what that means in terms of a domestic policy, or at least some of us know what that means in terms of domestic policy. It means exactly the same in terms of uh, foreign policy. It means that the role of the U.S. government is to protect the lives of Americans, uh, the lives of Americans in, in you know their property. So it means it's there to protect us from foreigners who want to invade us, it's there to protect us from foreigners who want to uh, uh, send terrorists to kill Americans, wherever those Americans might be. 
Uh, it's there to protect us against uh, countries that might just on, on a large scale steal our property, um, the property of Americans. And that's it. That's basically it. So it's not there. What is it not there to do? It's not there to bring democracy to the world. It's not there to protect some countries against other countries. It's not there to, um, you know, to, to help the world become a better place, to be the policeman of the world and so on. Now, if America executes appropriately on its foreign policy, I believe the world becomes a better place for everybody. And I think the world becomes a safer place for everybody and better for everybody. But that is not the purpose. The purpose is not uh, to bring democracy, to bring safety, to uh, you know, ensure that the Iraqis or whoever have a good life. The, the only purpose is to protect the lives of Americans, and America should engage in whatever foreign policy necessary. And of course, as part of that, let me just expand a little bit, it's to protect the ability of Americans to trade overseas, that their property is not stolen. So, you know, uh, Thomas Jefferson was... was uh, you know, sent the Marines to protect American trade from pirates. And I think that's it's kind of funny that we can't even do that today, 200 and something years after the fact, after Thomas Jefferson, and with a, with a Navy that is the mightiest in human history, that dominates the seas if we wanted it to. We can't get rid even of a bunch of pirates um, in, uh, you know, in off the coast of Somalia. So it just suggests how pathetic our foreign policy is. And again, no matter who, uh, but Great. Thanks for the overview. Now, in terms of having allies around the world internationally, what is it to have an ally? You know, who should be our allies? And in particular, I do want to talk about why should Israel be one of our strongest allies? So with regard to foreign policy, it's appropriate to have allies in the context of having an enemy. That is, if one has an enemy... If somebody is trying to kill Americans or trying to invade your country or, or threatening your country, then it's appropriate to allow and ally oneself with other countries that have similar values to yourself and who also are threatened by a common enemy. So, uh, you know, if they if they're during the uh, during World War Two. And assuming it was appropriate for the United States to enter the war and to fight against, let's say, the, the, the Nazis, then uh, Great Britain was obviously an ally. It shares similar values with us, it, uh, it, and it has a common enemy. In my view, it wasn't appropriate to view the Soviet Union as an ally because it doesn't share common values. Indeed, its values are hostile to American values, so it would not be appropriate for the Soviet Union to be an ally during World War II. Uh, and, and again, let's assume, and we can talk about if this is true or not, let's assume there are radicals in the Middle East, the Islamic radicals, who pose a threat to the United States. Well, then, having Japan as an ally to fight them is kind of meaningless. What, what does Japan have to do with the Middle East? It has nothing to do with the Middle East. It's, it's kind of meaningless. But Israel, which is right in the Middle East, right there on the front lines, confronting exactly the same enemy as we do, then becomes an ally. It shares fundamental values with the United States, uh, and we can talk about what those are. It shares fundamental views about the United with the United States, and it faces a similar enemy to that of the United States, and therefore uh, it is an ally in the in the war that I think exists between the United States and radical Islam. 
So the, the two things that you have to have as a prerequisite are some sort of commonality of values. Not exactly the same because Israel is kind of more on the socialist spectrum than we are, right? They're further down the path. Well, I mean, it, it depends on how you view that, right? Israel's becoming less socialist, and we're becoming more socialist. Ah, but but okay. let's talk about Israel's value, because this always comes up. I mean, people say, but it's a religious place, and it's a, uh, what was the other one? And it's socialist. What? Look, all countries in the world are mixed economies. Mixed economies are mixed across the board, not just from economic policy, but also from the from the perspective of, uh, social policy, all the countries out there in the world are more mixed, uh, are mixed. Uh, and the United States, of course, is mixed. Uh, from an economic policy, we are now, depending on the, on, the, on the survey you look at, we're anywhere from number 10 to number 18 on the, on the economic freedom index. So in terms of other forms of freedom, we might be higher. I don't know, I don't know that anybody does that, looks at, looks at uh, you know, other forms of freedom, individual freedom. You know, speech issues like that. So everybody in the world out there is a mixture, a mixture of good and a mixture of bad. You know, and but there is a threshold, there is a, a cutoff point where you can say everybody on one side of this, you know, is pretty good. Is, is basically good. The American government is pretty good. You know, life here is pretty good with all the complaining we do, with all the and just complaining. You know, you can still speak here. You can still have a blog where you can criticize the American government. I mean, look at how, what kind of names we call Obama and the kind of things we call him. I mean, uh, you know, uh, we have free speech in this country. And you can still make a living and you can still have a semblance of private property and you can still go out there and do stuff. You can, you can live a life. I mean, as oppressive as many of you who don't live in California think California is – you know, life's pretty sweet out here. It's sunny outside right now. I just went to a nice restaurant, you know, strolled along the beach. There are no armed guards everywhere. There's no policemen with submachine guns uh, monitoring my every movement. I'm not being followed because I'm part of the opposition or whatever. Uh, there is a line, you know, and that line includes, the, you know, which the countries are good. You can say these are good countries. They have the basic protection of individual rights. They're not the way we want them to be. They're drifting in the wrong direction. You can say a lot of negatives, but you can still say they're basically good. And you know, U.S. would be there. Most of you know, most of Europe today would be there. Almost all of Europe today, which is different than what it was before the Berlin Wall came down. You know, many countries in Asia, Japan, South Korea, uh, even places like Thailand, uh, you know, Australia, New Zealand. So there are definitely significant numbers. And, you know, and Russia would be, you know, I don't know where Russia would fall, maybe on the line. But then there are countries that are clearly, you know, Canada would be there. But then there are countries that are clearly bad countries where you would be followed if you were an objectivist. You would be monitored uh, where you can't say what you want. I, I was once in China doing a seminar on Ayn Rand, which, which is pretty cool. You know, you can do a seminar in China and Ayn Rand at the university. But there was the secret police was outside because they were monitoring one of the professors that were attending and he was being followed everywhere he went. You don't find in the West, in what we consider the West, including the Asian, the, 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 the countries in Asia that are Western, you don't find that. So you can categorize uh, North Korea is a bad country. You can categorize Burma. You know, it's moving in the right direction, but still a bad country. You know, Myanmar, I think they call themselves. Uh, you know, one of the amazing trends of the last 30 years 
is that very few bad countries, right? The, the trend over the last 30 years internationally is, and, and Iran is a bad country. Somebody just posted that on the chat. You know, but, but the phenomena out there is there are fewer and fewer and fewer bad countries. You know, Saudi Arabia is a bad country. Egypt now is shifting from somewhat bad to really bad. Uh, you know, many of these, the countries in the Middle East are bad countries, and we'll get to that in a minute. Almost all of them. You wouldn't want to live in any of those countries. Those are horrible countries from the perspective of individual freedom. Any semblance of property rights doesn't exist. No freedom of speech and, and no protection of property rights. So none of those countries in the Middle East are that way. So, you know, somebody said, particularly if you're a woman, exactly, absolutely. Yes, yes. So, there is a line that basically says this is bad, this is evil, these are evil governments, they're run by authoritarians, this is good. Almost all of the Middle East is bad. You know, a, a bunch of uh, Africa is bad. Not all of it, but a, but a lot of it is bad. Asia shifted to, to, to cross the line into good. Some of Africa shifted now into good. All of Europe now is, almost all of Europe is in the good side. And, and again, that's if you, if you really think from a geopolitical perspective, the number one story of the last 50 years is a movement from authoritarian governments to relatively free governments, and we should celebrate that. You know, I know it's it's we can all, we can all we're all experts are being pessimists. I'm certainly very good at it. But if you look, if you if you live in the Czech Republic, life's much better than it was under the Soviets. If you're in Poland, wow, things are looking really up. And uh, but that's true. You know, even in South America with all the problems, look at look at Chile. Look how well Chile's going to do is doing. By the way, remind me, I'll make a movie recommendation afterwards. Okay. Uh, Chile reminded me of it. Okay. Um, now, where does Israel fall? Well, Israel solidly falls on the good side. Israel is a country whose rights are protected for the most part. You know, as much as they are in Western Europe, Israel's no different than most Western European countries. You have free speech in Israel. It doesn't matter if you're Jew, Christian, Muslim. You can criticize the government. You can demonstrate. You can start a newspaper that's critical of the government. You have full freedoms uh, of speech. Uh, you know, in, 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 in terms of people talk about, oh, Israel's religious. In many respects, it's easier to get an abortion in Israel than it is in the United States. Um, you know, there's too much religion in Israel. It's hard to get a civilian wedding in Israel. You can't really get a civilian wedding. But if you get a wedding in Cyprus or in Europe, it's completely recognized by, the, by Israel. So you don't have to be religiously married in order to be, it, for it to be recognized. There is a very large gay population in Israel that has, you know, I don't know the situation right now with gay marriages. I assume that's still banned in Israel. But it's also banned in the U.S., in most states in the U.S. Well, and in most places in the Middle East, uh, homosexuals well, are we'll hung get and to that. stoned Exactly. And the yeah. contrast is yeah. astounding. Uh, women have equal rights in Israel. Arabs have equal rights in Israel. Yeah, there are cases in which there's discrimination, but there are cases in which there's discrimination all over the world. Um, are, are they worse than a lot of the discrimination elsewhere? No, they're far fewer than in many other countries. Uh, so on every single one of the parameters that, that we measure what it means to be a free country, Israel qualifies. Israel is a, is a fantastic country in those now. Particularly if you compare it to, to, the, to, to its neighbors in the Middle East, where if you're homosexual, you get stoned to death. If you're a woman, you get your genitals mutilated. If you're, if you're a, a, a young female and you have sex out of wedlock, you get, you, 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 it's okay to have honor killings and it's okay for your family to kill you. I mean, that would be 
that would be the, the essence of barbarism in Israel. You would go to jail for the rest of your life. Nobody would excuse anything like that, even among even if it happened in a in a in a Muslim family or in a very religious Jewish family. I mean, there would be outrage in Israeli society over things like that. Uh any of those things. So to compare Israel to, to any of that, I mean it is Ayn Rand said that Israel is this island in a sea of barbarism, and she was absolutely right. I mean the rest of the Middle East is primitive, it's barbaric. Now, yeah, there are these islands of what is perceived of, of islands of Western civilization. I don't know, Dubai and so on. But that's true if you're a Westerner. But if you're, if you're a woman in Dubai, you don't have rights that an Arab woman, a Muslim woman has in Israel. A Muslim woman in Israel has more rights than in any Arab country, in any Arab country. And there are only a few Muslim countries they come even close. I don't know, you know, maybe in Malaysia, maybe in Turkey, you have, you know, Turkey, you have similar rights to what you have in Israel, but, but, but no other. So Israel is a bastion of freedom, a bastion of freedom as compared to the rest of the Middle East. And as compared to the rest of the world, it's certainly on the good side and it's probably in the middle of the pack. It's, it's not as free as the United States is. It's not as capitalist as Hong Kong. But it's not as bad as some of the countries that, that probably still count as good countries. So it's somewhere in the middle of the pack there. And it should be treated. And it's Western. I mean, if you go there, you can see the technology, the industry. It's considered a developed country. I mean, if you – I don't know how many of you know how big Israel is. But Israel, if you had a highway that went east-west, it would be 40, 45-minute drive. And if you had a highway that went south-north, it would six-hour drive. That's it. Right. It's a hostile environment in which people want to kill you. And yet it has a thriving economy. It's creating enormous amounts of wealth and it's doing it because people are relatively free. Then they're entrepreneurial and, they, and they're Western. So, you know, this is a country that should be celebrated. Anybody who believes in freedom, anybody who believes in liberty should celebrate the existence of Israel in the sea of barbarism. It, it is a phenomenal country so to see uh, libertarians, uh, to see people in a, you know, to see Americans hating Israel, to me is a, is, is a, is a, is a unbelievable travesty. It's an unbelievable, it shows a lack of appreciation for human liberty and human freedom uh, and a hatred, a hatred of the good for being the good, a hatred of achievement, a hatred of success, a, and a hatred of, of, uh, of freedom. And, and for the libertarians who are anarchists, this is derived from the fact that they hate government. And the fact is that the hatred of government is such that they hate relatively free governments more than they hate oppressive governments. If, if, the, if those libertarians spent even an iota of that time criticizing Iran or Saudi Arabia or, or, or some countries in Africa, uh, you know, or the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood that they do for criticizing Israel, but they hate the, the, the relatively free countries and their governments more, in that sense, they hate the American government, which is the real travesty, more than they hate these other uh, much more oppressive governments. So, but on a scale, wow, Israel, Israel is way out there in, on, on the side of, uh, of freedom. And a lot less, Israel's moving towards capitalism. It used to be a lot more socialist. America's moving towards socialism and statism. Mm -hmm. It used to be a lot more capitalist. Who's better? I'd say the people moving towards freedom. No, that's true. And and whereas you say, well, Israel's maybe in the middle of the pack with regard to which one's on the good side of sharing our values, they are uniquely positioned to help us with respect to our enemies in the region 
of which there are many and, and many dangerous enemies. So I think that makes them uniquely positioned to be a strong ally. Here's one question, and this comes from the libertarian perspective. Some of them say, oh, well, you know, my problem is really the fact that we give aid to Israel. Now, you know, for me, I say within the context of giving aid to everybody and their sister in the entire world, yes, of course we should give aid to Israel, but in a proper society where you've got a proper foreign policy, would we be giving aid to Israel at all? Probably not. I mean, not as long as they, they you know, they they were doing fine and they were surviving. I mean, we gave aid to Britain during World War II, and I think that's appropriate because it was part of a war effort. But assuming there's no ongoing war, because if we had a foreign policy, proper foreign policy, believe me, there would be no threat <laughs> to the United States today and there would be no war. Uh, but assuming that there was no war, no, I, you know, and I, I would cut off all economic aid to Israel right now. But I would do that last, right? You've got to, what do we give to 140 different countries? Of all those countries, Israel is, the, is probably the most deserving because it does face an enemy that we share. But no, at the end of the day, all we have to do is sell them the weapons that they need to defend themselves. And I think the Israelis can take care of themselves both economically. I know they can take care of themselves both economically and militarily. You don't have to send American troops to Israel. You don't have to send them economic aid. You don't have to send them money. Just, But leave them alone, right? What we do do, and we can talk about this for hours, is we hamper their ability to self-defense. So our foreign policy since 1967, well, since the founding of Israel, since 1948, has been to hurt Israel, to hold it back, to prevent it from winning wars, to prevent them from killing their enemies. And you see it right now. Our foreign policy over the last, over Bush and Obama, has been dedicated to preventing Israel from, uh, you know, attacking the Iranians. So we do everything in our power to prevent them to do what is necessary to defend themselves, to fight for their own self-defense. So uh, my view is don't give them aid, but also don't hamper their ability to defend themselves, encourage it. The, the only type of support we should be giving Israel is moral and political. Right. The world hates them. The world wants to see them wiped out. We should at least stand up for them, and we should at least say these are good guys. And to me, what's horrific is the number of people that refuse to say Israel is the good guy in this conflict. One question that was raised by a listener both in the chat room I saw today and on Facebook is the issue of Turkey. In particular, I guess recently Turkey was asked to apologize, or no, Israel was asked to apologize to Turkey. And uh, why why did Israel apologize to Turkey? Is Turkey taking an aggressive stance to Israel? What did Israel have to gain by apologizing, et cetera? Well, we need a little bit of history here. So first, um, Turkey is an interesting country, right? Because Turkey used to be the empire. It was the Turkish empire and the caliphate. And they ruled an Islamic empire. And it, at, at its peak, it went from Vienna, deep in Central Europe, uh, ac across North Africa, you know, all the way to Iran, all the way down into Saudi Arabia. And they were the rulers of the entire Middle East. And, of course, they were defeated in World War One. And at that point, uh, a, uh, a young military officer took over uh, by the name of Ataturk, took over Turkey and basically secularized it. Now, the way he secularized it is not exactly something we would support. He basically secularized it by brute force. He he killed the, all the religious leaders. He executed them in mass. He forced them. He forced people to be secular. By, for example, it, it's illegal in uh, in Turkey to wear, to cover your face if you're a woman to wear a scarf. So the idea here is we're going to force you to be secular. Now that can't work, and we know that long term that won't work because. 
if you don't challenge them ideologically, if you don't present an ideological alternative, you know, the religion will win. And indeed, that's what's happening. So what's happened over the last, and I don't have the exact dates, but I'd say over the last 15 years, but really even earlier than that, is that you see, oh, and it's important to note the Constitution in Turkey is clear about this. So separation of church and state is 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 uh, is the most important principle in the Constitution. And the Turkish military has been given po- constitutional powers to overthrow any government that violates the separation of church and state. So it's Turkish military's job to step in and take over anytime they think this separation is threatened. And indeed, they've done that over the years. So the Turkish population, which is quite religious, um, it keeps voting for relatively religious uh, governments. And once in a while, those religious governments go across the line and uh, the military steps in and, and you get military rule for a while until they announce elections again and, and they go back. Now, what's happened is this one political party that today rules Turkey figured this game out. And what they said is, look, uh, they figured we're going to come in there as a secularized Islamist party. So they're, they're, they are religious, but we're going to try to become, uh, but we're going to hide that. And we're not going to make a big deal out of it. And, and when we go in, we're not going to start by imposing Sharia law. We're not going to do any of that stuff. Indeed, what they've done is they, they've come to power and they've liberalized the economy. And the economy in Turkey is doing very well. They privatized a lot of the economy. They got the government out of regulating it a lot. They've done good economic things. Is a is a religious one, and they've been helped by this, by the fact that the European Union, uh, twenty years ago or ten years ago, or, fi- or between fifteen and twenty, w- was really aggressively talking about bringing Turkey into the European Union, but they became more, you know, call it uh, anti-Islam because of the problems after nine eleven, and because of, of the of the problems the Islamic population is creating within Europe. And they and they have become. They said, "No, we don't want Turkey." So Turkey has, has taken that as a as a signal to become, in a sense, more isolationist, and it's emboldened this Turkish political power to become more Islamic. And they're slowly becoming more and more and more Islamist. And Erdogan, who is, I think, the president of Turkey, or the, was the prime minister, and I think now is the president, is is very much a, a religious Islamist, but believes in this incremental approach, and and they do believe deep down. In in um, you know reestablishing the caliphate, reestablishing Sharia law, but they can't do it all at once. So they're very slowly now. What they've done, for example, is they've replaced the entire military leadership in Turkey, mm. uh, and they got rid of all the very secularists. They're slowly replacing the courts. The Supreme Court was very secular. They're slowly replacing the courts in a very very slow way. The Turkish government is slowly bringing religion more and more and more into it. And because Europe is so, um, on the one hand, opposed to Islamists, but not really, and but more opposed to Islamists, they're opposed to military rule. So the Europeans have basically said to the Turkish military, you can't take over if you feel threatened. So there's no counterbalance to Islam anymore. And Turkey's becoming more and more Islamist. Together with them becoming more and more Islamist, they become more and more anti-Israeli. So whereas 15 years ago, uh, Israelis used to uh, trade heavily with Turkey. There used to be a massive amount of tourism that used to go from Israel to Turkey. In the last five, six, seven years, that has come down dramatically. Ogawan is clearly anti-Israel. 
many members of his of his um, government have been have expressed very stringent anti-Semitic comments, uh, very stringent anti-Israeli comments, and they've generally been very very anti-Israel and anti anti-Semitic. So uh, what happened a few years ago? I think it's two or three years ago. You know, Israel has this uh, blockade on Gaza. And the idea there is, you know, Israel left Gaza and left it to the Palestinians. And the idea was that, you know, Gaza would turn into, in a sense, an autonomous place where the Palestinians would be able to determine what they wanted, how they wanted to live. And, of course, what happened was Gaza was taken over by the most radical Islamist factions among the Palestinians. It was taken over by Hamas, which is a, a brutal enemy of Israel, believes in eradicating Israel completely off the face of the on the map, and they lob missiles into Israel. So Israel, in an act of pure self-defense and completely legitimized, and how anybody could anybody could criticize Israel for this is ridiculous. Put a blockade around Gaza and said, "Look, we will we'll, we'll allow for electricity to go in." People don't know this, but the Israelis supply all the electricity yeah, to Gaza. Know, that we know. Israel <laughs> supplies it, right? Ugh. We'll allow water and food and all of that to go in, but. We are not going to allow ships to just come in and unload stuff because we know, because we found this in the past, that it's a way to smuggle weapons and missiles and, you know, from Iran and elsewhere. And those missiles are getting into Gaza anyway. They're getting in through tunnels that they've dug under the Egyptian border. By the way, the Egyptians have sealed that border as well. So this idea that only Israel has a blockade in Gaza is BS because the, the, the Egyptians, their brothers, their brother, their Muslim brothers have sealed their border, and that's why they have these tunnels. Uh, so Israel blockades it and doesn't allow ships in unless it can check and make sure that it's just carrying basic Food supplies. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I think Israel's being ridiculously suicidally generous here. Let's be very clear. I wouldn't even allow food, and I would cut off all the electricity. But we can talk about that. That's just me, right? I, I don't believe in feeding, clothing, and providing electricity to people who are sworn to kill me and to and to lob missiles into my territory. I mean, that is Christian, turn the other cheek, suicidal nuttiness. Um, so, but they allow it, okay? Um, so that what happened was this uh, uh, this uh, number of ships tried to break the blockade, and they they came from Turkey, and there were a number of Turkish citizens on it, and the Israelis stopped them, and they boarded some of the ships because the ships wouldn't turn around, right? They kept going, and when they boarded, some of these um, Peace activists came at the Israeli soldiers with axes and sticks and rocks and all this kind of stuff. And I think nine of them were killed in the in the exchange. Turkey has demanded an apology. It uh, withdrew its ambassador from Israel. It, uh, you know, said cut off, in a sense, diplomatic relations or a big chunk of diplomatic relations. And Israel, to its credit, refused to apologize. And then, um, and then of course... Uh, Obama visited Israel, and as part of the deal, whatever the deal was that he cut with the Israelis to be nice to them and they'd be nice to him, uh, was he persuaded Netanyahu to call up the Turks and uh, apologize. And and the apology was very carefully worded. It, it, you know, we wish we had taken more precaution not to hurt the lives of the. So it wasn't an apology for actually stopping the boats. It was an apology for for the loss of life. Uh, but it's ridiculous that he had to apologize. It's a complete appeasement and compromise. Now, there's also some concern about Syria. I mean, you, we can get into the whole global impact of this because Turkey has a, a big border with Syria. 
and Israel doesn't want the you know doesn't want the Turks to be hostile because they would like to work with them on whatever happens ultimately in Syria. Uh, again, a large extent, a consequence of the weakness that the Israelis. I mean, Israel should just impose its will uh, on the Syrians uh, if they threaten it. Thank you for that question. Now, um, there is, by the way, speaking of what you talked about, the turn the other cheek Christian policy in the yeah. Middle East. I don't know if you heard about this on Friday, Good Friday, Pope Francis did his first Good Friday ceremony. And during it, he was talking to Christians in the Middle East and he, uh, you know, to people he referred to as, quote, our Muslim brothers in the Middle East. But he says, Christians must respond to evil with good, taking the cross upon themselves as Jesus did. And then later he went on to say that with respect to the persecuted Christians in the region, that he hopes that they have, quote, the courage to remain in their countries, end quote. So he wants them to take a cross upon themselves. Even if they're persecuted, they should stay right where they are, I guess just be killed or something. Uh, what kind of strategy is Why not? this? I mean, if you, if you die in the cause of God, you go to heaven. I mean, isn't that wonderful? I mean, this is, this is the problem with Christianity, at least as interpreted by the Catholics and many, many Protestants. And that is, I mean, love the, you should love your neighbor. You should turn, love, uh, yeah, love your enemy. You should turn the other cheek. And sacrifice and suffering is good, and the meek shall inherit the earth. I mean, let's not forget what Christianity at its core means. And I know American Christians have the diff- a completely different interpretation of, of it, but that's because they're American and Christian second. So they, they adopt American values, and then they, then they in my view, uh, distort Christianity to fit their American sense of life and their American values. I have, I have seen, though, this week Christians, when presented with this fact about the Pope, and then in particular, you heard this other story about the Pope went and washed and kissed Muslim well, prisoners' feet. That's so what we're they're talking, supposed to do. Right. So, so Jesus washed the feet. You yeah. Know, so, so American Christians, Catholics, when asked about the Pope doing this and would they do this and what do they think of this, they say, "Well, I I feel honored to be part of a religion in which the head of my religion does this thing, which is just like what Jesus did." Yeah. No. It, look, this is what it's all about. This is why the West is dying, because we've become more Christian than many Christians are. We become, we've taken our Christianity seriously. Now, it took Immanuel Kant to secularize Christianity for us to become better Christians. And, of course, he wrote his philosophy in order to save Christianity, right, to save it. And he has. Mm-hmm. So in a sense of sacrifice, in a sense of loving our neighbor, in a sense of turning the other cheek, you know, we, we, are, we are pathetic. We are weaklings. And, of course, the Jews are no better. Look at Israel. Israel supplies electricity and food and everything to their enemy. By the way, somebody asked you, what would happen if Israel enforced a total blockade like that on Gaza, such as blocking all shipments, etc.? Well, what would happen was you'd have a civil war within Gaza. Uh, you know, people would riot in the street and, and they would choose, they would have to choose between two outcomes. One outcome is uh, starvation, probably, uh, and, and immense suffering. Um, you know, maybe they they you know, knock down the fence and swarm into Egypt and become an Egyptian problem. That's fine with me. Uh, or they would have to choose the path that says, wow, maybe this the Hamas is taking us down a bad road. Why don't we negotiate with Israel? Why don't we sit down and cut a deal with them? Maybe, you know, maybe we can get food. Let's stop shelling them. Let's stop bombing them. Let's become their friends. Maybe, and this is the approach all Palestinians should take, 
What could we learn from Israel? It's so successful. These guys are so rich as compared to us. They're so free as compared to us. They have such a good life as compared to us. What could we learn from them? Ooh, maybe that's it. We should, we, should, we should embrace their system of government. We should embrace their philosophy. Maybe this Islam thing is, is, is overrated and bad for us. Maybe we should, you know, become more secular and, and become like the Jews over there. So that's what would happen. Now, the world would go apoplectic, including the United States. I mean, Israel would, would be crucified because we crucified the good for the sake of evil. That's... Again, that's our Christianity in us. Uh, you know, that's our sacrifice. That's Kantian altruism in us. Uh, you know, help our enemy, penalize our friends. And we would go after Israel, and Israel would suffer the consequences. You know, so the, the world sucks. But Israel has to do what it needs to do. Uh, because uh, Israel's very existence depends on us. We, you know, we've got oceans to surrounding us we're in pretty good shape as compared to our enemies i mean islam's never going to take over the united states in my view so i'll you know the enemy's not real to us but to israel it's an existential threat uh we should butt out and let them do what they need to do in order to win do you see israel even having the guts to do something like that anyway though who israel no yeah. israel has no guts yeah. to do it and somebody says here good luck with that you're on the quran forbids any rational thought Look, all religion forbids any rational thought. That's the essence of religion, is the denial of rational thought. Now, you can interpret it uh, 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 consistently, as the Christians did in the Middle Ages. You can soften your stand and say rationality has some role in some part of your life, as Christianity has done since Thomas Aquinas, and in some places expanded the role of rationality or limited the role of rationality. But all religion, by its nature, is anti-rational. And, and Islam... Uh, during its uh, golden age in the uh, 9th to 12th century, was much more rational than the West was. So this isn't this isn't an issue of the Quran. I mean, most religious people everywhere don't read their holy book or don't take it seriously. They don't actually pay attention to it. it you know, how many Christians have actually read the Old and New Testament and know what they actually say and 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 follow the commandments to the letter? Almost none. Uh, the question is. What path do Muslims take? Just like we asked the question in the United States. What path would Christians in the United States take? They can take a more positive path, which will, you know, which will return, can return America to, to, to greater freedom and, and, and economic freedom and so on. Or they can take the bad path and drive us into the Middle Ages. Um, yeah, for those of you asking about the Islamic Golden Age, uh, wow, it was unbelievable. Uh, it was an unbelievable, uh, yeah, it was Islam at a golden age. What are you saying? Lots of, look, these were Muslims uh, in the name of religion. Read the Islamic, what they're called Islamic philosophers. Look at the debates between the Islamic philosophers who were Platonists and those who were Aristotelians. Look at the libraries in Baghdad, un, unequaled anywhere in the world, anywhere close during that period. Look at the science and the math that came out of that. Um, don't diminish the Islamic Golden Age, just like you would say. You would say the Renaissance was, you know, was a Christian came out of Christianity. Uh, they had a Renaissance in in uh, the the, uh, the Muslims did, and both the the Golden Age and the Islam and the um, uh, the Renaissance both are Renaissances of what? Both are Renaissances of Greece. Both come from Greece. Should have nothing to do with Islam. 
true any more than the Renaissance had anything to do with Christianity. But they happen in a Christian world, and this happened in an Islamic world. My point is that living under an Islamic world doesn't prevent one from being rational. Any more than living within a Christian world prevents us from being rational, at least to some extent. And, you know, all of that is thanks to the Greeks. You know, they were both renaissances of Greek philosophy, of Greek spirit, of Greek sense of life. Um, so, and we need one, by the way, today. Wouldn't be bad to have a, a Greek renaissance right now. We're drifting away, away from Greece, uh, spiritually, materially, in every single way today in America. I mean, I would say the Renaissance is needed much more in the Middle East than here, but oh, sure. it's needed here as but well. But who cares about the Middle East? We need it here. Yeah, I, I'd, I, I'd much rather have it here than in the Middle East. Well, if we had it here, then we I could take here. care of the Middle East. Yeah, well, you know? they could take care of themselves. I, you know, well, no, I but I mean, we, we could take care of them as a, as a threat is what I mean. I mean, it's, yeah. taking care of the Middle East as a threat is like 10 minutes of work. Yeah, if we, I, if we had the right policy. Yeah, if we had the right policy. You know, in two weeks after 9-11, the threat would be gone. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. These people... Yeah, the Middle East produces no weapons. They create nothing. You know, the the, the, the Iranians don't produce their tanks or produce their, their firearms. They have to buy them from everywhere. The, the Saudis, Bin Laden had no weapons. That he, I mean, compare them to the Japanese of World War II or the Nazis of World War II that had mighty industrial, you know, mighty industrial complex that they could use that, that had, you know, Western science at least working for them i mean it would be limited it couldn't survive under authoritarianism but they took advantage of that these countries are nothing they live they live literally in caves the only thing they have is oil oil which we found we gave them the technology to refine we made possible we i mean westerners i mean western companies and then they stole them so they're good crooks but uh, and they're good thieves but there's nothing there uh there, there's nothing there that makes uh you know, uh, there's nothing there that is a threat to us. There's no threat to the United States in the Middle East if we had a half of a decent foreign policy. No, I, I definitely agree. Now, let's back up a little bit to the abstract in terms of foreign policy, and particularly with respect to the proper policy of war. You have written in the past uh, an article that I've read uh, in which you say that the proper policy in war is that we as Americans do whatever is necessary to remove the threat to our lives and property with minimal loss of life on our side, minimal loss of life, expense, et cetera, so that we can do whatever is necessary. And in the course of that, we as objectivists have discussed the fact that sometimes if civilians of the enemy state die, that is not our responsibility. Can you expand on that? Sure, but, but Zach, you're misinterpreting this. Uh, uh, yeah, Muslim killed. He's good talking to Zach in the chat room. Yeah, Zach way. in the chat room. Uh, Muslim killed. You know, we almost killed Galileo, and we put a it, Christianity put a lot of people in the stake. Uh, algebra did not come from the Indians. The, the zero came from the Indians, but algebra was developed by Muslims. And uh, if you look at Islamic medicine, Islamic, it shouldn't be, you're right, it shouldn't be called Islamic, but medicine in Iraq in the Middle East during the period, they had the circulatory system hundreds of years before we, you know, the West discovered it. Uh, you know, don't diminish the success of the Renaissance under Islamic rule. It was an amazing, amazing period uh, for human beings, particularly if you compare it to the lives of of, uh, of of people in Western Europe at the time. Um, uh, Zach, you'll have to provide a link in the chat room, some sort of a source. But hey, this is this is the point. 
Um, yes, the job of the American government is to protect the lives of Americans, not the lives of Iraqis, not the lives of others. So if somebody attacks us, then all the casualties in war, all the moral blame for all the deaths in war the moral responsibility of those who initiated force. Mm-hmm. The people who initiate the force are responsible for everybody who dies. So, for example, in World War II, the Japanese are responsible for Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The blood of the people who died in Hiroshima and Nagasaki is in the hands of the emperor and the governments of Japan. Not an ounce of it, not a tiny drop of it is on America. America was doing what was necessary to defend itself. Um, so, I am a complete advocate of self-defense. So, you, you, you know, America should not initiate wars. It shouldn't go out there and uh, and just fight wars for the sake of fighting wars or for expansionary reasons. But once it is attacked, it is the job of the American government, the committed job of the American government, to do whatever is necessary to protect the lives of Americans. And if that means that a lot of civilians on the other side die, then that is sad. And nobody, nobody, nobody is glad at the loss of life of children anywhere in the world. But the moral blame, the moral responsibility for the loss of those children is on the hands of those who started the war, those who began it, those who initiated force. Now, we could get into a lot of arguments about who starts it. And fine. But once we establish who started the war, they're responsible for the, for the loss of life. They're responsible for the blood the, the responsibility of the country defending itself is to win and to minimize the casualties of its own civilians. Now, that doesn't mean that pe- people in your enemy country don't have rights. It just means that from your perspective, from the perspective of that, the person defending himself, those rights are irrelevant because what you're concerned is about your own life. What you're concerned is about protecting the people that you're responsible for protecting, which is what the government's job is. The, 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 the rights were violated. The rights of the people are violated when their government initiated force against you. And you do not have to concern yourself with their rights in defending yourself. Right. So while technology makes it possible, perhaps now, to eliminate threats against us without hitting as many civilians sometimes, that's wonderful and great, but it doesn't mean that it's our moral duty to avoid hitting civilians when that's the only, I mean, that, that's what's necessary to eliminate the threat with minimal loss of life on our side. We don't have to put our soldiers at risk in particular. I mean, this is what I've seen in just war theory, that they we should value the civilians of the enemy state over the lives of our own soldiers. Yes, and that, that again, is this, is this ridiculous notion of sacrifice, this notion that our troops, they don't count. What really counts are the civilians of the other side. And it's okay to kill a Marine to protect 10 uh, civilians and my view is no it's not right to kill a marine to protect a million civilians on the other side the point is that we need to do what is necessary uh, to win when there's a real threat to us now to the extent that we can avoid civilian casualties again nobody gets pleasure out of this nobody thinks this is good then you do it but uh, but the standard is always what will end hostilities what will protect the lives of americans and what will end this as quickly as possible so that Americans can be safe? And, and by the way, I include American troops in that. So because you're a soldier, yes, you've signed on to risk your life. 
But there's a limit to that. That is, you signed up to risk your life if you have to. But your life is not insignificant. It's just, you know, whatever whatever the politicians want. You know, let's let's send these guys for a suicide mission. That is not the assumption as a soldier is that your politicians and and and, and generals will do whatever's necessary to protect your life while at the same time committing yourself to victory. Yeah, Jonathan Honig in the chat room has put a link to the Just War Theory versus American Self-Defense article where that's the standard. That yeah, thank you. But, and, but, but and, that, uh, in the Winning the Unwinnable War. Yeah, Winning the Unwinnable War is a slightly yeah. edited version of that, which I think is slightly better. Plus, you'll get a lot more of the essays because the essays they buy. I've got three essays co-authored in there. And then you've got uh, a whole series of essays by Langiorno. So if you really want to understand the objectivist view of foreign policy, two books, that's one. And the second one is uh, Peter Schwartz's, uh, I think, A Foreign Policy of Self-Defense, which is uh, also available on Amazon. Just look up Peter Schwartz. Those two books will give you a sense of American foreign policy, of uh, uh, the objectivist view of a, a pro- proper foreign policy. Now here's a follow-up maybe from Deborah. She says, given just war theory, it's concerned with civilian, civilian casualties. Uh, if we were to suffer in a major attack by North Korea, would we retaliate? I wonder if we would. And, and that, that leads into the next Today? question I was going to ask you. What do you think about North Korea? You've got this kid who's now a dictator over there who's wowed by Dennis Rodman, and he's doing the same kind of saber-rattling, I guess, that they've been doing for years. So what, you don't like basketball? Is that the point? No. that's, not, that's <laughs> I love basketball. Uh, Rodman's no longer in it, but whatever. As, as you, as you said last time you were he here, you, you said the best thing that he ever did was play with Jordan, and I agree. But uh, one thing that I heard suggested on Red Eye this week, which was interesting, is that the youth of this Kim Jong-un combined with – all the saber rattling that he's been doing recently, I guess, with the South Korean uh, celebrations, is that he's going to feel like he's going to have to back up all this saber rattling with some actual action. Do you think he's going to actually do anything? And if so, as Deborah in the chat room asks, would we respond? Um, so no, I don't. I mean, he'll do stuff, yes, and he'll do stuff because he knows we won't respond. Um, I don't think he could hit the United States. I, I, I don't think they could hit. Anything, I think. I think their uh, missile technology is very primitive, and and is it, it couldn't couldn't he couldn't find California even if he tried. It, it much more likely would hit the ocean, but I don't think he'll try. Uh, I don't think he'd attack Japan. I don't, again, I don't think they'd be able to hit Japan. Uh, I think they'll hit South Korea in ways that are not too horrible, so that they don't inspire a response. Um, and. Uh, you know, I I, th- I don't think they're suicidal. I, I think he's an, he's crazy. I think he's nuts. So you never know what a nutty person will do. But look, North Korea is a is a perfect lesson in um, a perfect lesson in how not to manage foreign policy. Because why are we where we are today? I mean, this is an example of ridiculous, pathetic American foreign policy. People forget this. But North Korea was developing nuclear weapons in the 70s, and we negotiated with them, and they promised, they promised that they wouldn't develop nuclear weapons if only we gave them food. And we gave them food, and they still developed nuclear weapons. And then in the 80s, they said, oh, just so you know, we've been developing nuclear weapons. We're, uh, you know, we're we're ignoring what you said. So uh, Ronald Reagan said, I think it was George Bush Sr., he said, Oh, no, don't do that. Uh, if you promise to stop developing nuclear weapons, we'll give you food. 
So we gave them more food, and they said, oh, we'll stop this time. This time I promise we will not develop any nuclear weapons. And then when Clinton came around, they said, oh, we cheated. We are developing nuclear weapons. Will you give us even more food if we stop? And Clinton said, well, of course we'll give you – you know, I'm making a character out of this. But that's exactly what happened. This has been going on since the Jimmy Carter administration, right? And then, of course, if, you know, what was it, eight, nine years ago – they actually developed the nuclear weapons. Surprise, surprise. You appease them and appease them and appease them. Now, by the way, if we refused to give them food in the 70s, they probably wouldn't be a communist dictatorship anymore because they would have starved themselves to death. Uh, the only reason this regime survives is because of the help we, the South Koreans, who are being threatened today, and the rest of the West give them. We deserve a – I hate to say this, but we deserve a nuke in the United States. We deserve that they nuke us because – our appeasement has driven this. Our appeasement has enslaved the North Korean people for, for, for probably 20 years more than they needed to be enslaved. Our appeasement has allowed them to build nuclear weapons. Our appeasement has coddled this regime. It's made it possible. I mean, we could have destroyed that nuclear weapons program at any point that we wanted. We could have stopped providing them with food. Now they have nukes. What are you going to do? Now we can't do anything. Now we just have to sit around and wait for this nuck. Nuts, complete and utter nutcase to figure out what he wants to do. And he plays with us and because he, he knows he's willing to blow. He's willing to use a bomb if we invade or if we bomb him. We're not. So he's, he's just playing with us. He's toying with us. And, and, but this is all, all, all the fault of the United States. Not because we did, were nice, but because we were too nice, because we were too appeasing, because we were too compromising. Uh, and it's time that we got a backbone. Of course, we won't get a backbone for a long time. So surprise, surprise, it worked so well. This appeasement stuff worked so well with North Korea. We're going to do it again with Iran. And in 10 years, we'll, we'll get it. The Iranians will have a bomb. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that Iran will develop a nuclear weapon. There's no, not an iota of doubt because I don't think the Israelis will do anything about it. And I know the Americans won't do anything about it. Uh, you know, so the Iranians will get it. I, I mean, I'm surprised. And of course, we're not, you know, people talk, oh, we've got this tough embargo on Iran. No, we don't. No, we don't. Not at all. There's, you know, there's, there's, there's huge amount of trade going on with Iran that, that the West is involved in. Uh, they couldn't build these nuclear, uh, uh, you know, what do you call it? Nuclear, um, the uh, centrifuges without getting technology from the West. So the whole thing is a sham. It's more and more appeasement, and we know exactly what appeasement does. People say, you can't mention Hitler, but I will. You know, we appeased him in 36 and 38, and we got World War II. We appeased the, South, the North Koreans. We got a nuclear bomb. We appeased the Soviet Union, and we got the extension of communism all the way till 1991. It could have gone 20 years earlier. We were feeding the Russians and the Soviets for years and years and years. If we hadn't fed them, the war might have fallen Decades earlier, we appease our enemy, and we the result is a disaster. Why is anybody surprised that we, we learn nothing from experience? And it's all because of altruism. It's all because of this self-sacrificial philosophy that guides our people. It's not even the government's fault. It's not Obama's fault. It's not Bush's fault. It's our fault. It's the fault of your neighbor who is an altruist. So – you said we deserve to get hit by a nuclear weapon. Let me just follow on. <laughs> I mean, well, no, because if, I don't know if you saw earlier, Zach in the chat room up the, the scroll a little bit there was asking the question, have we, has the United States 
done anything that would make it so that other countries are justified in hitting us in a way that would target us, the civilians. Mm-hmm. Is, is, is that the kind of thing that you're saying because of this appeasement? I, I don't think yeah. it is. is no, it? no. I mean, we deserve philosophically to suffer the consequence of our actions, uh, actions of appeasement. And we will. Look, one way or another, we will suffer for what we've done with North Korea. We will suffer for our pathetic uh, foreign policy. And I believe 9-11 was a consequence of our foreign policy. The opposite of what many libertarians believe. 9-11 was a constant, was a, we suffered because of our weakness. We suffered because of our pathetic uh, inability to defend ourselves and defend our poverty and defend our rights in the Middle East and elsewhere. And with regard to the question, my answer is no. Um, and, and by the way, no, you don't deserve to be nuked. I don't deserve to be nuked. But when your government, when our government does horrible, stupid, ridiculous things, you, we, I are going to suffer the consequences. That's why politics is so important. That's why sitting on your hands and not doing anything is not an option. That's why fighting for a better U.S. government with a better foreign policy is so crucial because we will, whether we deserve it or not, suffer the consequences of what our government does. But look, no, 9-11 was not blowback. The Middle East doesn't hate us because we did something horrible to them. They should love us. We brought them technology. We brought them the image of what capitalism can do. Uh, we gave them the opportunity to emulate us. We gave them the opportunity. We gave them the technology. Where do they have the oil from? As I said before, they've got oil because we, they stole our technology. We did nothing. They should be on their hands and knees thanking us for everything we've done for them. The idea that we somehow upset them. Oh, my God, we did something horrible, and they're really pissed off at us today. Or in 1953, we overthrew a prime minister in Iran, and as a consequence, it's okay for them you know, to, uh, to uh, take our embassy. It's so ahistorical, and it's so morally subjectivist. It's mo- so, uh, such a moral equivocation or equivalence. It's just absurd. In 1953, we helped overthrow... A, uh, a, a Iranian prime minister, and we helped over there. We, did, we weren't the primary actors. Because they were about to steal all of our oil. I wish we'd done it more frequently in the Middle East in order to protect the Americans' property, the individual rights of Americans. And because there was really no rule in Iran. I mean, study, study Iranian history. The, the Iranian history is a history of a, a, an area that was falling apart. There was no real control. There was no real government in Iran. Uh, during the early part of the 20th century, the, the Russians held half of Iran. The British held another half of Iran. They cut all kinds of deals, which they kept rene- the, the Iranians, which they kept reneging on, to 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 call our replacement of the now uh, of the prime minister in 1953 as some horrible act that we deserve punishment for is just absurd. Now, was the Shah a good guy? No, and he was somewhat of a friend of ours. But remember, he wasn't completely a friend of ours at all. If we had been consistent, we wouldn't have allowed him to then steal all the oil. He was the one who actually nationalized the oil and confiscated it. So he was no friend of the United States. And I wish we had dealt with him as not a friend of the United States. Uh, unfortunately, this is our lousy foreign policy. We pretended he was a friend. And, they, and, uh, and he ruled with an iron fist, which was completely inappropriate. As I said, allies have to share your values. The Shah didn't share our values. He shouldn't have been viewed as an ally. But that is no excuse for the Iranians to hate us, hate the Shah, overthrow the Shah, which they did. Fine. 
what would be nice if they replaced it with something freer, not something even more oppressive than the Shah ever was. More oppressive and determined to uh, to kill us. Wonderful. What do you what do you think, Yaron? We are towards the end of the hour here. I do have the ability to stay on longer. Do you want to try to take any more questions sure, here from the bit. chat let's, room? Let's maybe do fifteen minutes. Okay, about fifteen more minutes. Yep. And uh, Earl in the chat room has a question here. He says, do we have a call? Uh, the call does not have a question. I already okay. I already cleared okay. that. So uh, Earl in the chat room says, given that our foreign policy is so far away from any kind of ideal, what are some realistic incremental improvements that are possible over the next three to five years that we could advocate for? Well, I don't see how you can advocate for anything with this president, but what you can maybe do is is try to influence um try to influence a future president uh, to be better. What what are some of the few things you can do? Um well, we could stop foreign aid to countries like Egypt. Uh, we talked about this I think in a previous show. Some countries like Egypt that are clearly hostile to the United States and we give them 3 billion dollars of aid a year. So I would withdraw I would draw all aid to all countries, all 140. I, you know, it's it's a significant. It's it's much more money, by the way, than the sequester. People people uh, say, oh, that won't make a dent in the budget. Well, it, it, of course it will. It won't make a big dent. I'd like to see us cut a lot more, but that's a good beginning. Let's get rid of all that. Um, let's um, uh, you know, let's unequivocally express our support for Israel and let it do what it needs to do and let it defend itself. Just back off. Um, you know, let's uh, make it clear that uh, Islamic totalitarianism, in whatever form it takes, regimes like the Muslim Brotherhood, the Iranian regime, are hostile to America, uh, and therefore, you know, we should have nothing to do with them. Don't and sell they, them weapons. Certainly, don't sell them weapons. But, but we should withdraw our ambassador from Egypt, in my opinion, um, and from Tunisia, and from any, and from Libya, any other place that adopts an Islamist regime. We should we should butt out of Syria. We should, you know, the worst thing we could do now is intervene in Syria. You've got a relatively secular dictator fighting what will be a religious fanatical Muslim Brotherhood uh, insurgency. Who who are the good guys? There are no good guys. Butt out. Let them kill each other. Let them keep keep this going. We should withdraw our aid. We should bring back a lot of our troops from a lot of parts of the world where they are unnecessary. Uh, we should also neutralize the Iranian nuclear capability. Now, I'm not privy to intelligence information, so I don't know what the best way to do that, but if it involves bombing those facilities, we should do it. If it involves putting special forces on the ground and bombing it that way, we should do it. If it involves, you know, another one of these computer bugs that... Exactly, yeah. Whatever it takes, right? Whatever it takes. We should make sure, unequivocally, unquestionably, that uh, the Iranians never get a nuclear bomb, and we should do whatever is necessary in order to do that, because that nuclear bomb is a direct threat and constitutes initiation of force against the United States. Now, whether we need excuses in Iran, they did take our embassy in 79, which is an act of war. They have killed Americans all over the globe uh, for decades, uh, many Americans. Uh, they've they've, they've ex- engaged in acts of war against the United States uh, since 1979, so we've got plenty of reasons to go after them. But just neutralize the nuclear program, uh, and then uh, hopefully massively and aggressively support the opposition in Iran to overthrow the regime. Um, you know, uh, yeah, killing their scientists, that happens all the time. The Israelis are doing that constantly, killing Israeli scientists. But at the end of the day, that's not enough. Somebody has to destroy their facilities, and if it's not Israel, then it should be the United States. 
you know, what else can we do um, from? Oh, how about pirates? I'm, I'm a big, I'm big on pirates. How about stopping the piratry uh, with Somalia? You, you take the, I can't remember if it, the sixth fleet is in the Mediterranean. So I can't remember which fleet it is in the Indian Ocean. Bring it to the shore of Somalia and uh, sink every boat that looks like a pirate boat. And you know, if it, if they won't stop, then start destroying the villages on the coast from which the, the pirates come, and they will stop very quickly. Uh, pirates in Somalia will end when they start suffering the consequences of the initiation of force which they're engaged in. Uh, piratery is not a romantic, wonderful thing as some people would like to portray it. Um, piratery is the initiation of force. It is, and it needs to end, and, uh, you know, it's not hard to end it. It's just a matter of commitment, and we should have our troops committed to doing that. It wouldn't take much in order to stop it. Um yeah, that's a good beginning for for decent foreign policy. Uh, we should, oh, what most important thing, Korea? get out of the uh, get out of the UN. That would be really good. You know, send the UN shipping from New York. I I propose Caracas is the headquarters of the UN uh, in Venezuela, but but you know maybe Cuba will take them. Maybe you could do it in Cuba. Um, what do you do with North Korea? You know nothing really. I mean, um, you know if you can't stealthily. Go in and, and kill the guy who runs it. I would, you know, maybe Dennis Rodman would, if he was a CIA spy and he poisoned the guy, that would be good. Um, you know, he's threatening the United States with war. So it's an act of war. He's engaged in warfare right now. There is no, uh, so he's initiated force. He certainly initiated force against South Korea. Um, so I would, I would, uh, I would do whatever was possible to go in there and disrupt the regime. Now, you have to be careful of the nuclear weapons and the fact that the guys are crazy. So, again, I'm not an intelligence expert with vis-a-vis -vis North Korea, but you do what you can to North Korea to neutralize it. Someone in the chat room is asking whether, and, and he said that someone in PJ Media had facetiously suggested this, but in, in Middle East, the solution is a one-state solution that Israel should expand over the entire Middle East I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't, why would they want that's to? Ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Well, exactly. Yeah. They don't have a self-interest to do it. Why would they? There's nothing wrong with doing that from the perspective of violating anybody's rights. Whose right, rights right. exactly would they be violating? But what would be their interest in doing that? Israel needs a one-state solution between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. But for that, Israel needs to re-educate its Arab population uh, towards the values of freedom and... and uh, and liberty, and as long as they don't do that, it's suicide for them to allow all those people to vote. But I could see in 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 the in the long run, a um, you know a one state solution from the Jordan to the Mediterranean, which Arabs and Jews live in a right under rights protecting governments. I think that's the only solution. A Palestinian state is not a viable solution long term. But to do that, the Arabs need a change, and to do that, the Jews will have to change. But it's much more likely, in my view, if I had to put odds on it. It's much more likely that Israel won't exist in 40 years than, than you'll have a peaceful one-state solution. I, I think the probability of Israel existing in 40 years is less than 50%. Uh, so you say 40 years. What about 20 years? I don't know. These probabilities are hard. But, but yeah, I mean, it, it's hard. Iran having a nuclear bomb. Saudis may be getting a nuke because the Iranians have it. We don't object to the Saudis having it. A nuke gets smuggled into the Gaza Strip. Or just demographics. The Arabs have lots of kids. The Palestinians have lots of kids. Uh, you know, and and the Jews become morally weaker and weaker and weaker. The Israelis become weaker and weaker and weaker, less willing to protect themselves 
and and it just they just disappear over time. Is the Ayn Rand Institute in Israel having any influence? Well, it's still very early. We're trying to promote Ayn Rand's books in Israel. Uh, hopefully, that'll have a long-term impact. But it, it's it's really hard to gauge. We've only been around. We've only been doing this for a few months. It's hard to gauge what kind of influence we can have. And remember, you know, Israel is very philosophical. They read a lot, and and they're much more influenced by European compromising, uh, self-sacrificial philosophy than even the United States is. Okay. Anybody else in the chat room? What is this? Commemorate 9/11 with something other than? Uh, yeah, I don't think we need to commemorate 9/11. There's nothing about 9/11 that needs to be commemorated. I mean, the sooner we wipe it from our memory, the better. And the only way to wipe it from our memory is to destroy the enemy and make it so that we would never fear another 9-11. The only reason to commemorate 9-11 is to remember. And the only reason to remember is in order to stay vigilant. But why do we need to stay vigilant if we actually destroyed the enemy, came home? Let's live a happy, successful life. Let's forget about, you know, what we want to remember is the the philosophical policy things that led to 9-11. What we want to remember is weakness, appeasement, compromise always, always, always lead to death, to death. That's true in your personal life, by the way. It leads to your own death. Mm-hmm. It just, it's a slower, more torturous death. It's just you don't literally fall down dead. In foreign policy, it leads to slow, torturous death, and sometimes it also leads to people falling, dropping dead because the enemy kills them. But there's no – look, this is, this is the power of philosophy. This is Ayn Rand. Altruism leads to death. Sacrifice leads to death. And there's no compromise between altruism and egoism. And this is why all this uh, 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 just war theory garbage about somehow compromising between a self-interested policy and an altruistic policy. Yeah, self-interest is good, but you gotta, you gotta, you got to compromise it and soften it and lighten it or whatever you, you want to call it. force only as Self, a last resort. Yeah, self-interest yeah. is self-interest. It means if my life's at risk, I do what's necessary to protect myself. And that's true of a country as much as an individual. And, you know, you know I live for me. That's what self-interest, don't try to sweeten self-interest. Self-interest means I do it for me. I live my life for my happiness. Now, I never sacrifice others towards that, but to a large extent, that's because sacrificing others to my life will never result in more happiness. So you don't sacrifice others for the sake of your happiness, but in engaging in your life, your happiness is the context, is the standard, is the purpose. That's what you're living for. You know, too too many times we try to soften it and round it off and we care about this and we care about that. We only care about anything to the extent that it affects our happiness. This is why I said once we destroy the enemy and once we become a free, successful country, I don't care that much about the Middle East. I don't. Now, it's not so much destroy the enemy entirely as much as neutralize the enemy so that they pose a risk to us no longer, in effect, right? Yes, but yeah. remember that neutralizing means destroying some of them. I'm not, saying, no, exactly. I'm not exactly. saying you need yeah. to flatten the Middle East. No, and just, no. no. Yeah, yeah. indeed, I believe that if you use my method of warfare, fewer people on the enemy side die. Fewer people on the enemy side die. So Hiroshima and Nagasaki saved the lives of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Japanese, because if America had to invade Japan, potentially millions of civilians would have died. And people forget that before Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we firebombed every major Japanese city. We killed hundreds of thousands of civilians. You know, we, we created over a million homeless people. So it wasn't like we were gentle and nice and suddenly we dropped these bombs. We just wanted to make a statement. 
And that statement saved the lives of millions. And I, I think it's one of the most moral, courageous acts in military political history to approve the droppings. I hate to, I hate to give kudos to Truman, but he deserves a lot of credit for doing that because I know that this president wouldn't do it. George Bush wouldn't do it. I don't think any American president in the last 50 years would do it. So, um, you know, Truman deserves a lot of credit for being willing to take that act. Uh, and so, but, but remember that this, if, if we had the right foreign policy, if Israel had the right foreign policy in the Middle East, the lives of the Arabs in the Middle East would be far better than they are today. We, and we would save the lives of millions. But again, that's not the reason to do it. The reason to do it is because we are selfish, but we are self-interested because the job of our government is to protect us, ourselves. And, uh, you know, it turns out that if we're all selfish, life is better for everybody. So, again, remember the two books to look at if you want to look at the objectivist view of the proper foreign policy are Winning the Unwinnable War. And Jonathan Honig has posted the link to that book's website in the chat room here. And the other one you said is written by Peter Schwartz, and it is called, I think again... Foreign Policy of Self-Interest. Okay. Um, but and winning the unwinnable war it has its own website. It's winning the unwinnable war dot com. Uh, Peter Schwartz's book can be found on the e, on the Ayn Rand Institute e bookstore about that and winning the unwinnable war. And um, you know, if you're really interested in this, you want to delve deeper on the principles behind a foreign, a, appropriate foreign policy. Read those two books. Excellent. Thank you very much, uh, Yaron. Where are you going to appear? In the next little while, you want to tell our listeners? Sure. My next uh, public appearance is going to be in um, uh, the next public appearance is going to be in Porto Alegre in uh, Brazil. I'm doing two public events there. So if you're in South America, come join us. It should be really uh, fun and interesting. Then I'm going to take vacations. If you don't see me tweeting or Facebooking for a while, I'm on vacation for three weeks in Brazil, including the Amazon jungle and the beaches and Rio and uh, and having a lot of fun there. And I think following that, my Public appearance following that would be in Toronto. Uh, so in beginning May of May, 6th, May sixth in Toronto. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but of course, I'm not talking much about foreign policy. If you, oh, if you want to follow somebody on foreign policy, if the foreign policy is your issue, then Ilan Jono is a real expert on foreign policy. He's the one who's uh, who you should uh, follow on Facebook. You should uh, follow his uh, blog posts uh, on the institute website. Read his op-eds, and he's actually working on a book. Just to give him a plug on uh, American foreign policy vis-a-vis Israel. So he's on the Israeli-American relationship. I think it's going to be a fabulous, really, really interesting book that delves into that relationship, both from a historical perspective, but also from you know, what it should be and what it could be under proper foreign policy. Uh, and uh, I'm looking forward to reading that book when it comes out in, in a few years. And uh, he's the guy you should be reading and following on, uh, on, this, uh, on this topic. Okay, great. Thanks, Jaron. Program announcement next week. Join me for an interview with David Allen, who is the author of Getting Things Done. It's going to be a completely different type of show because there the topic is going to be aspects of human nature and here's the big word, philosophy, epistemology, theory of knowledge. But I think that there are certain aspects of epistemology, in particular objectivist epistemology, that lead right into the need for the methodology that David Allen talks about in getting things done. So I'm going to talk about that with him. It should be fun. It should be fun for both fans of GTD and objectivism. As far as this show goes, if you want to leave a comment on the show, you can always go to my blog at don'tletitgo.com. 
There is a Facebook page for this show, Don't Let It Go Unheard on Facebook. You can follow me on Twitter, Amy Peacock. Also follow your own Brooke on Twitter, although he's going to be to betraying all of us for weeks on oh, vacation. Oh, I think I'm going to be tweeting from Brazil. I'll, I'll send you photographs of monkeys. Uh, I think I'm going to enjoy that. That's going to be fun. And you better be safe, Yaron, because we need you back here. We need, a, we need our president. Uh, at my blog, you, not only can you find a comment on today's show, you can leave a comment there. You can find a link there that will allow you to contribute to this podcast. Several people have contributed, some of them very generously, and I thank you for that. Uh, another thing you can do is under the Amy tab, you can read my bio and get information on having me come to speak at your event. You can get your own to speak at your event through the Ayn Rand Institute. So thanks very much. Uh, most importantly, if you do like the show, please spread the word. Tell your friends. Mostly this spreads by word of mouth. Yes, this particular show is featured by Blog Talk Radio, and we love it. But uh, we also love it to, if you spread the word to your friends. Cool. Uh, now, Larry says, who is that again? Elon that you Oh, yeah, Elon Giorno. So E-L-A-N, last name Giorno, J-O-U-R-N-O. Okay? Thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you next week. Have a good night.